Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 82. Hey, I'm your host, Dr. Yami. I'm a board-certified pediatrician, certified health and wellness coach, author, and speaker. I'm also a passionate promoter of the power of diet and lifestyle in preventing and reversing chronic disease and bringing joy and longevity into our lives. This podcast is focused on plant-based nutrition, habit formation, motivation, and mindset so that you can have the tools to live the best life possible. Are you ready to get started? Let's do this. Do you suffer from allergies? Do you have seasonal allergies or food allergies? Or do you have a child that has these symptoms? Happy Sunday, veggie lovers, and welcome back to Veggie Doctor Radio. We are more than halfway through the first month of the year. Can you believe it? It's going by fast already. I hope that you've been enjoying the episodes that I'm bringing you this year so far. So many exciting things to come. But this episode is going to be the first in a two-part series on allergies. Do you suffer from allergies? Do you have seasonal allergies or food allergies? Or do you have a child that has these symptoms? I am going to hopefully get a lot of your questions answered about who to test, what to test, what is the difference between an allergy, a sensitivity, an intolerance, what is causing the increased risk or the increased rise of allergies and what's going on with all that. So in this episode, I interview Dr. David Stukas who is an associate professor of pediatrics in the Division of Allergy and Immunology at Nationwide Children's Hospital, which is in Columbus, Ohio. And he is fantastic. I kind of rapid fire asked him so many different questions just to get a foundation laid down, to get the basics and introduction. And I think that you're going to find it really, really helpful. But before I go on to introduce Dr. Stukas and more about him, Let me remind you of a few things. Remember, if you're not already on my newsletter, I would love it if you join me there. I will send you a reminder every week about the podcast and other special news or little goodies every once in a while. To sign up, there's two ways to do it. You can go to dryami.com. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-A-M-I.com forward slash sign up. Or you can text the word fiber, F-I-B-E-R, to 668 Six six. Remember, my book is out. If you have already purchased it and have read it, I would so appreciate an Amazon book review. Just get onto your Amazon account, find my book, and write a review. I really, really appreciate those. If you have not purchased it, they are available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, many other major booksellers online. 
in my office. Currently, they are available in paperback and in ebook. So the audiobook coming soon. Of course, everything is always taking always takes longer than I think it's going to. I thought it was going to be out last month, but hopefully this month. Um, a little, a few little hiccups in that, but should be out soon for those of you that prefer the audio version of things. And I don't blame you. So I will let you know when that is out. And I want to take a moment to read another wonderful warm review from my Amazon reviews on my book. This is from Family Rogers. The title is Gentle, Easy to Implement for All Ages and Stages. I love that this has ideas for all ages and stages and promotes a gentle and simple way to make healthy changes to produce healthy habits. Thank you so much, Family Rogers. I really appreciate you taking the time to read my book and write a review. Another reminder, if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review my podcast. That really helps me. It helps the podcast get found, other people to find this information and learn more about all the guests and all the things that we talk about here on Veggie Doctor Radio. And if you really like any of these episodes, please share them. There's lots of ways to share them. You can share it directly with another person. You can message them, text message them, email them, or you can share it on social media. That would be fantastic. And let other people know that you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much. I know that all these things take time, but for those of you that really enjoy the show and support it, I would really appreciate that. It's really generous of you and I feel very grateful for your support. So thank you so much. Okay, well let's talk about Dr. Dave. So Dr. David Stukas is an associate professor of pediatrics in the Division of Allergy and Immunology at Nationwide Children's Hospital and the Ohio State University College of Medicine in Columbus, Ohio. Dr. Stukas received his undergraduate and medical degrees from the University of Pittsburgh. He completed his pediatric residency and chief residency at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, followed by his fellowship in allergy and immunology at the Cleveland Clinic. He is an active member of both the American Academy and College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. That is a mouthful. American Academy and College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. He served as a member of the expert panel and co-author of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, sponsored addendum guidelines for the prevention of peanut allergy in the United States, and in 2018, he accepted an invitation to join the Joint Task Force on Practice Parameters for Allergy and Immunology as one of 12 allergists from across the United States tasked with reviewing published evidence to update clinical guidelines. That's a big deal, guys. So basically, he helps write the guidelines that come out about allergy and immunology and asthma. So that's a really big deal. His research interests lie in food allergy and asthma with a desire to better understand and implement evidence-based guidelines into clinical care. He has over 40 peer-reviewed publications, 11 book chapters, and published his first textbook, Allergies in Adolescence, Transitioning to Independence in 2018, and his second textbook, Social Media for Healthcare Professionals, was just published this year. Lastly, Dr. Dave is best known for his pioneering work in the use of social media 
for distributing evidence-based information. He communicates and advocates for patients through his active Twitter account at AllergyKidsDoc, where he routinely engages with the general public and colleagues from around the world. He has used his social media presence to build a platform of over 18,000 followers, to create curriculum at his institution, to educate medical students and residents on social media best practices, and to build a name not only for himself, but for the specialty of allergy and immunology. And on top of that, he is just a good guy. You can tell he has such a big heart and he is really caring. He makes the extra effort to be a guest on these kinds of shows, to bring you information so that you don't feel as confused, so that you have good evidence to base your decisions on, on how you're going to help your child or yourself or your family. So I really appreciate people like Dr. Stukas who take time to be on the podcast and disseminate this helpful information. Without further ado, here is the episode with Dr. David Stukas. Dr. Dave, thank you so much for joining me today on Veggie Doctor Radio. I am really excited about today's conversation. Oh, I can't thank you enough for the very kind invitation, and this is gonna be a lot of fun. Thank you. Well, I knew that I would like you right away because I started following you on Instagram, and you talked about getting on the Peloton, and instantly I felt like we had a common bond. So a fellow Pelomaniac, Thank you for joining me. <laughs> uh, it's my pleasure. You know, I fought tooth and nail against that. It was my wife's idea. And uh -huh. now you cannot get me off. So that's awesome. <laughs> oh man. I love that machine. Yes. Okay. So you are an expert. You are an expert allergist and I have so many questions for you, but first I want to start with what are the signs and symptoms of an allergy? That, that is a great starting point because this is where a lot of people medical professionals, parents, patients, this is where the confusion comes in. So when we're going to talk about allergy or food allergy, this represents a response from the immune system, which means it doesn't come and go over time. It's going to be reproducible every single time your body is exposed to the allergen. Uh, the other name would be antigen. So anything like a peanut protein or milk or dog dander, you name it. These are all different types of antigens or allergens. And a allergic reaction will occur typically within a few minutes of exposure. So if we're talking about a food allergy, within minutes of eating something, your body's going to have an allergic reaction. The allergen will interact with the allergy cells throughout the body. And we have these cells, they're called mast cells in the tissues. They're everywhere in our skin, in our lips, in our um, lungs even. Uh, they, we also have basophils in our bloodstream. And when you have allergy antibody called immunoglobulin E or IgE attached to those cells, and that IgE interacts with the allergen, it unlocks those cells to release various chemicals. One of the first chemicals that's released is called histamine. And histamine causes all of the symptoms that you would see in an allergic reaction. Itching, hives, swelling inside the lungs. It can cause squeezing of the airways or bronchospasm and coughing, wheezing. It causes nausea, vomiting in the gastrointestinal tract, also diarrhea. It can cause nasal congestion, watery eyes. It can cause the blood vessels to dilate and cause low blood pressure and what we call anaphylaxis, which is a combination of any of these symptoms. So that's really happening very quickly after the body is exposed to something. So that's a detailed look at what happens during an allergic reaction. But essentially, it's an immunologic response against any type of protein that produces rapid onset and reproducible symptoms with every exposure. 
So I'll pause there to see if you have any follow-up to that. Okay. So for each individual, each separate individual that has an allergy, do they have to have all of those symptoms or can some people just have some of those symptoms? No, that's a wonderful follow-up. So no, the symptoms can change over time and they do not absolutely all have to occur at the same time. They will vary within individuals and between individuals. Mm -hmm. um, the most common symptoms from like a food allergy reaction will be itching and some sort of skin symptoms such as hives or flushing. Uh, we often see gastrointestinal involvement with nausea, vomiting as well. Um, but you know, you don't have to have all of those symptoms to be classified as having a true allergy. But when you have exposure to this allergen, to this antigen, you're going to have symptoms within minutes of exposure. Yes. So it's rarely going to happen one to two hours later, or sorry, I should say more than one to two hours later. So there are common scenarios that I hear questions about. One, there is no such thing as a hidden food allergy. You're either allergic or you're not. If you're allergic, every time you eat the food, you should have symptoms when you eat the food. And it doesn't matter what form. If you are allergic to cow's milk protein, you will have food allergy reactions when you eat cheese, yogurt, ice cream, or drink milk, mm -hmm. as opposed to something like lactose intolerance, which may be related to the amount of milk that you drink and that causes more issues with digestion that can vary over time. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing I hear is, well, I developed hives or skin rash and I'm worried that I have a food allergy. I think it's because it's something that I ate yesterday or three days ago. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work that way. It's gonna happen pretty fast after eating it, when you're outside a two to three hour window, you can really not worry about that specific food any longer. Okay, great. What about the difference between food allergies and environmental allergies? So some people have these quote seasonal allergies where maybe in the spring and summer, they start to get the itchy eyes, runny nose. What's the difference there? It's the same exact immunologic mechanism involved. It's just a different way it's presented to the body and a different part of the body that's affected. So when you're breathing in environmental allergens, such as grass pollen in the summertime, tree pollen, ragweed, cat dander, you name it, you're going to be exposed inside your nose and then your lower respiratory tract or your lungs. So the symptoms will differ. So the symptoms most commonly are going to be itching because histamine causes itching, sneezing, runny nose, stuffy nose. You could have itchy, watery, swollen eyes. And some people can have coughing, especially if you already have asthma that can be a trigger for some people where their airways will squeeze and tighten, make it difficult for them to breathe, coughing, wheezing, that sort of thing. That's a very different type of exposure compared to a food allergen, which is ingested, and it's exposed to the gastrointestinal tract and absorbed systemically, which causes more widespread symptoms. Mm -hmm. And can environmental, like these pollen allergies, can that ever lead to anaphylaxis? It would be exceptionally unlikely, but it can occur in somebody who is exquisitely sensitive and they have multiple different allergies and say that there's a very high pollen load. The more common scenario is somebody who has really bad asthma, especially poorly controlled asthma, and they're exposed to an environmental allergen. It will cause their itchy, watery eyes, sneezing, runny nose, but also can cause a severe asthma exacerbation. Mm -hmm. um, this is an important consideration because there's a lot of uh, service animals that are going on airplanes. Mm. And there are millions of people who have environmental allergies. And there's rightful concern of, uh oh, what if I sit in the same row or the same airplane as an animal that I'm allergic to? Well, the vast majority of those people may have symptoms with exposure. But again, it's going to be itching, sneezing, runny nose, watery eyes. It would be exceptionally unlikely, if at all possible, for them to experience a severe life threatening anaphylactic reaction merely from casual exposures to a pet. That being said, there are always exceptions and every individual needs to consider their story and work with their personal allergies to determine their own individual risk from these various situations.
Yeah. And like you said, those people probably are aware because they've had situations where they might go to a relative's house or something and their eyes just swell up and they have an asthma attack. So they're hopefully already prepared for a situation like that to happen away from home um, and they can be protected. Which is more common, environmental allergens or food allergies? And can they be present in the same person? Oh, absolutely. Environmental allergens are way more common. So uh, unfortunately, we know that environmental allergies affect about 30 to 40% of the population. Uh, this includes kids and adults. Yeah, I, have, uh, I, I don't want to have job security, but I have job security. It's, there's a, there are millions of people who suffer from these. Um, whereas food allergies really only affect about 5 to 8% of the entire population. So they're much less likely uh, to occur. But yes, um, you know, we, we call it the allergic march. And often what happens is uh, we have babies who start having um, eczema or atopic dermatitis early in infancy, uh, characterized by dry, itchy skin, inflamed skin. Um, their eczema often improves by about two years of age. Sometimes it just resolves completely. But then that's their first marker that they may have um, increased risk to develop allergies. So they'll transition from eczema to developing food allergies, and then oftentimes will um, develop environmental allergies when they're a little bit older, and then asthma as well. Hmm. And I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that later. But before hmm. we move more um, towards the specifics, can you clear up for us, what is the difference between an allergy, a sensitivity, and an intolerance? And specifically here, I'm referring to foods because this is what I encounter a lot in my practice as a pediatrician. Yeah, this is a very, very important point. So if you have an allergy that is an immune response that will cause symptoms each and every time you're exposed to something, it can progress towards a life-threatening anaphylactic reaction. It's extremely important to identify what you're allergic to, to learn how to read labels and communicate to avoid accidental ingestion. And more often than not, you should have an epinephrine auto-injector available at all times because you could be at risk to have a life-threatening reaction. That simply does not occur with intolerances or sensitivities. Those are very different things. Unlike an allergy, an intolerance is really a difficulty with digestion. So it's I eat something and lactose intolerance is the most common one. For people who have lactose intolerance, they are missing the enzyme that digests that simple sugar, which is most often found in dairy products. If you eat something with lactose and can't digest it, it will pass through your gastrointestinal tract undigested. And basically what it does is it's osmosis. It's a large molecule sitting there and it sucks water into the bowels, which can cause cramping, bloating, diarrhea, and discomfort. If you eat more of it, you'll have more symptoms. You may not have any symptoms if you eat a very small amount of it. So that can be more dose dependent. And that can vary over time. There's a lot of people who develop sort of temporary lactose intolerance after a severe stomach flu or viral gastroenteritis, and that just resolves on its own as the gut heals. So that's a difficulty with digestion. For an allergy, we have allergy tests, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, that can help determine the likelihood that the allergy is present. For in a food intolerance, there are no tests really to help diagnose that, other than for somebody with suspected lactose intolerance, you can do a, um, a breath hydrogen test to help determine that. But otherwise, the allergy tests we use do not diagnose food intolerance, and there are no validated tests for that. Along those lines, a food intolerance will not cross over or progress to a life-threatening anaphylactic reaction. So while people should avoid foods that they're intolerant to due to difficulty with digestion and symptoms that occur, it's nowhere near the same level of risk that it would occur with a food allergy. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, food sensitivity. So I've looked deep and hard into this. There's no formal definition for food sensitivity. This is sort of something that was 
I don't want to say made up, but was created to help explain why people may feel certain symptoms when they eat certain foods. But there really is no, and you, you and I know that there's this ICD-10 or these diagnostic um, codes that we use when we see patients clinically to help diagnose what symptoms they have. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of codes. There's an ICD-10 code if somebody is stung by a yellow jacket where you have to clarify whether the yellow jacket intentionally stung them or accidentally stung them. That's how specific these diagnostic codes get. That being said, there is no diagnostic code for food sensitivity, which means there's no formal agreed upon definition. So it's really this nebulous description that has been adopted over the last few years where people will apply it to symptoms people may feel when they eat certain foods. And the vast majority of claims due to food sensitivity are not evidence-based or backed by any real plausible biochemical mechanism. And this would include things such as sexual dysfunction or memory loss or chronic fatigue or poor sleep or joint pain or arthritis or hair loss or, or random rashes and things like that. And we can talk more about that. But hopefully that describes the very important differences between those three different terms. Yeah. And I think one thing that I want people to know, and probably I'm assuming one of your pet peeves, I do believe food sensitivities exist because I have some and mm -hmm. they are reproducible. They do happen. It's not life threatening, but it's annoying. However, I think what confuses people is that there are practitioners that will do testing like IgG or IgA testing. And so then families bring me tests from these practitioners and they say, look, my, my son is allergic to these things. And so they eliminate that from the diet. So what is your thought on testing for food sensitivities? Yeah. And before I get to that, let me just clarify, because you raised a very important point. I want to apologize if anybody was offended by something I would have said, because sensitivities do exist. And the, the, the classic example would be non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So there are people out there that cannot digest gluten, which is commonly found in wheat, and they have symptoms with it. They don't have an intolerance necessarily. They don't have celiac disease as measured by biopsies of the intestines or blood work or things like that. But they clearly have these symptoms that improve when they avoid it, and then they come back when they eat the food. So yes, these are out there, but what I just want to clarify is there's really no formal agreed upon definition, mm -hmm. which along those lines now, there's no real test to diagnose a sensitivity. That being said, there are many people out there that will tout that they have tests that can diagnose these things. Most commonly, they'll sort of take a pseudoscientific slant on what we do with traditional IgE allergy testing, and they will apply it to other types of immunoglobulins or antibodies. Now, IgG is another type of antibody, but that is a protective antibody. It's something that we all form when we're exposed to, say, a virus or bacteria. Initially, our body forms an initial response, and then within a couple of weeks, we form these IgG protective antibodies. That's how vaccines work, and that's why they're so effective. And when we encounter that again in real life, we mount a very rapid response with our protective IgG soldiers who are called in to fight it off, and they're very effective at fighting off the infection. IgA is an antibody that lives on the surface of our mucous membranes, doesn't circulate throughout the bloodstream. Uh, it's really a first line of defense against bacteria and viruses that try to cause upper respiratory infections, sinusitis, pneumonia, things like that. When people measure specific IgG or IgA towards foods, these are not validated tests. And frankly, they don't tell us anything at all. They certainly don't diagnose quote unquote food sensitivity, which they're often touted to do. What we know about IgG especially is if you do IgG food tests on somebody that more than likely just measures something that they've eaten at some point in their life because it's a normal human response to form IgG against a food when you eat it. That's our body saying, I remember you. I don't need to fight you off. You belong here. 
these IgG tests not only are not validated, but they also are not supplied with any valuable, valuable unit of measurement. And that, as you know, there's no diagnostic tests that we use that don't have some sort of unit of measurement. And there's also no normal reference ranges because we don't know what a normal response is in somebody. So people will measure these. More often than not, all the foods that you test for will come back with quote unquote positive IgG levels or IgA levels or something like that. And then they will take that as equating to a diagnosis of food sensitivity, which leads to you know, terrible elimination diets and people really struggle um, you know, finding something that they can eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the danger I see of it is that then we end up eliminating a lot of foods from some children's diets. And, and that can be really stressful for families. And it may not necessarily improve some of the symptoms that they're concerned about. So thank you so much for clarifying that for me. Okay. So before we talk about treatment and looking more into testing and things like that, do you have any thoughts on why it seems like, and maybe confirm that this is true, are allergies on the rise? And if so, why? Is there an explanation of why we're having an increase in allergies? Yeah, they are on the rise. Um, it, we know that the, the prevalence of food allergies overall has more than doubled over the last couple of decades. Uh, we don't have one single answer. I can tell you that definitively. There are theories. Um, anybody who says, I know exactly why, you know, people are having more food allergies, they, you don't. There's no evidence that supports one single cause. Uh, there's a concept called the hygiene hypothesis that appears to play a very big role in all of this, and it's been shown in multiple populations across the world. And essentially, as we as a population and society have moved from more rural farming environments, where young children are exposed to dirt and germs and bacteria and farm animals, and more importantly, the feces from farm animals, um, where their immune systems are really, really good at practicing fighting off these different infections and they get robust responses. And we move from those farming environments to cleaner, sterile environments where we're using hand sanitizers and washing our hands and, you know, forget about the 10 second rule. We don't even allow the one second rule if something falls on the floor, you know, how dare us put it in our child's mouth. That has been um, very strongly associated with the rise in allergies. And the way I think about it is, you know, if our immune systems are, are very busy fighting off infections and practicing and building a robust immune response, they're too busy to really worry about something that is harmless, such as a peanut protein. Whereas if we're more sterile and not fighting off these infections and more clean um, and not practicing as much, that's when they kind of get bored and they start to recognize these harmless antigens as foreign and have these reactions. But I, I like oh, that mental image. That's super cute. It's kind of like your soldiers are standing around. They're like, what do we do? Oh, peanut protein. We got you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like they need something to do, you know, well, they do. And you know, it's funny. There's this huge misconception that babies um, don't have uh, a good immune system. And that's not true. They have robust immune systems. They can handle a whole lot. And in fact, we want them to, we want their immune cells to go to the gym and build muscles and practice and get strong. And the only way to do that is for them to be exposed to the common childhood illnesses. And yes, every parent, I'm one as well, is so sick and tired, pun intended, of their infants and toddlers and young children getting sick all year long. The average child, average healthy child has between six to 10 viral upper respiratory infections a year, which can cause misery for two weeks at a time. That's average. So that means you're sick for three to six months out of the year. And that's a normal response to the world that we live in and the exposures that we have, especially kids who are in daycare, going to school, older siblings, things like that. If you're above average, that means by definition, half the population, you're sick more frequently and for longer. That's okay. That's a normal immune system building those things. Because guess what? When those kids go to school for the first time, they're healthy and fine. 
it's the kindergartner who has never been sick that they then enter kindergarten and finally get exposed to all these germs. They're the ones who really feel miserable. Exactly. I did a monologue a few weeks ago about infection and respiratory infections. And one of the main factors in developing respiratory infections is exposure. So I know a lot of families are all like, oh, my kid never gets sick, but this might be the child that hasn't left the house and doesn't go to daycare and doesn't have siblings yet. Of course, they're not going to get sick. But once you go out there and you start exposing yourself to some of these viruses, we're going to start processing them and showing symptoms of infection. So it's a really good um, emphasis on that to talk about what, why it's important to expose ourselves to some of these. So there, there's the hygiene hypothesis. Is there any other theories out there as to why we might be developing more allergies? Yeah, and this is where we, we likely screwed up as medical professionals. Um, I remember my allergy training. It was no milk until one, no eggs until two, no nuts or seafood till three. If you're pregnant or breastfeeding, don't eat any foods at all because you're going to cause your kid to develop food allergies. Water only. <laughs> right. So that was, those are official guidelines by the American Academy of Pediatrics published in the year 2000. Well, just eight years later, they went back and said, hold on a second here. There is no evidence to support that. In fact, that was just based upon a best guess. And it made sense. That was the, the information that was available at the time that made the most sense. If you avoid being exposed to it, you won't become allergic. Well, it turns out the opposite is true. And now we have robust and outstanding evidence that shows the opposite. In fact, the earlier we introduce allergenic foods to an infant's diet and keep it in the diet, we can effectively prevent the development of food allergy in the vast majority of kids. It's not 100% effective, doesn't work for everybody, but it's the best shot that we have now. Um, so the recommendations now are beginning around four to six months of age, when babies have already demonstrated the ability and or um, interest in eating solid foods. Start with the typical cereals and oatmeals and, and purees and things like that. Then we can start introducing these various allergenic foods in age-appropriate forms. Never whole or partial peanuts, but we can try thin peanut butter, peanut powder. We can try various forms of yogurt. We don't want them to drink milk until they're at least uh, at least cow's milk till 12 months of age because it can cause anemia and difficulty digesting. Um, but they can start eating, you know, yogurt melts and small pieces of cheese, things that have egg in them. So we want to give them a nice diverse array of foods and, and move away from these very prescriptive and limited diets. Um, now that being said, um, you know, I think we all need to recognize as medical professionals that this is a complete paradigm shift. And you know, for decades we've said avoid, 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 and now we're saying, no, go ahead and feed it, have fun with it. This is the best path to avoid an allergy. Well, we're gonna lose a lot of trust. And I understand that, rightfully so, because if you said one thing one time, and now you're saying the opposite, which one do I believe? And then of course there's a lot of conspiracy theories that surround all this thing. Um, but you know, this is how science works. And science evolves with time. As we get more and more evidence, we can incorporate all of the evidence that is growing and say, how does this fit with our prior evidence? Did we even have prior evidence for some of the recommendations that we used to do? Or was it just completely made up? And that's how we grow. And that's how our understanding of things really evolves. Exactly. And I think that's why it's important as medical professionals that we explain these things to our patients. You know, like, we used to do it this way and this was the reason, but now we did these studies and we look at these large population studies, look at how they're doing it in Europe, and it really seems to be decreasing the risk of something that can really affect your life in a huge way. So I think that's, that's really important to be able to explain to people. And usually, especially the families that I deal with, they're actually kind of relieved when they get to introduce some of these things. Um, so two questions. One looks like you're saying that it's important to allow our kids to play in dirt 
and get exposed to things as one of the ways to maybe decrease the risk of allergies. And then the second is we should introduce some of these foods earlier rather than later. Um, At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. So, but the other thing is I am vegan personally. And also I work with a lot of vegan families and a lot of people that want to have a plant-based diet. I've talked to some other mothers who are also vegan or plant-based and have been wondering about how important it is to introduce some of these animal products to their children and how much, if, if we do choose to flex in that area and we want to decrease the risk of our child developing a potentially life-threatening allergy, how much do we need to introduce what form? Is there an easier way than having to give them animal flesh, such as fish, things like that? What would your recommendations be for the vegan community? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's a couple aspects to consider. So one, for any infant and uh, toddler and, and developing child, we want to make sure that they have the proper nutrition to help them grow and normal brain development. And your audience is very savvy to make sure that you have the proper replacements and make sure they get the good nutrients. So that's always first and foremost. Um, here's how I look at it. Realistically speaking, 97% of the population never has to worry about their child developing a cow's milk allergy. They don't have to worry about it. No matter what you do, you could feed them, you could not feed them, you could sprinkle you know, unicorn dust on them, it's, it's not going to change anything. It's just because that's what the numbers show. So the vast majority of people never have to worry about this. So for your, your audience and in, in this specific type of population, my recommendation is always have these conversations with their, their child's personal pediatrician because they will know the, understand the individual nuances that really pertain to their care and are most important. But there is a cohort of infants that are raising their hands saying, I'm at highest risk to develop allergies. Those infants who have truly severe eczema, mm -hmm. they have the eczema that's just, it's not one little spot that kind of clears up when you put some cortisone on and comes back again and stubborn. It's generalized distribution, arms and legs covered, their cheeks are oozing, no matter what you're doing. You're, you're hydrating them every day with moisturizer, using good topical cortisone, and it still is not making it a dent. Those are the babies saying, I'm the one who's going to develop other types of allergies as they get older. So that one would require a sort of a, a different approach. And I would strongly encourage introducing these different allergens to try to prevent that. Even if it's not going to be a part of your diet, 
or their diet, that's a life-altering thing if we can prevent that yes. because food allergies are really hard to live with. Um, if you don't want to actually use animal products, you know, it, it, we live in the day and age of marketing and entrepreneurship, and there are actually several companies now that are developing products designed for toddlers where they contain food proteins in different things like puffs and cookies and cereals. So you can actually feed multiple different proteins at once and it makes it a lot easier. And some families like it because you don't have to worry about meal preparation and, and fighting with the toddler about trying to get them to eat different tastes and textures. But that's certainly an option that, that these families might want to consider. Interesting. Of course, something like that exists. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's like your little um, allergy prevention pill in a little puff form. <laughs> yes. And, you know, and, and as you know, and your audience knows better than anybody, we always want to go with whole food and that, you know, the, the, the raw foods and the whole foods are always what's best and most nutritious. And, um, you know, it's, it's good to encourage babies to learn different tastes and textures and things like that. Um, but it, it's, it, this is an option that can be used as an adjunct to that as well. I love it. Thank you so much for telling us about that. So you've already kind of started going there, but who is it that should be tested for these allergies? Well, anybody who has a history that is suggestive for a food allergy, uh, they're the ones who really should have a test to see if they have a food allergy. Mm-hmm. So that's a basic answer, but I'll explain. Yeah. <laughs> so we have, there are three ways to test for food allergy. As I mentioned a couple of times, IgE is the allergy antibody. So we can do a skin prick or scratch test where we take a small amount of the liquid allergen and we apply it to the back of the forearm. We gently scratch through the top part of the skin to introduce the allergen to those mast cells sitting there. If those mast cells contain the IgE against that allergen, we wait 15 minutes. If histamine will be released, it will cause a localized hive. So the size of the bump and the redness can help indicate the likelihood that an allergy is present. The second way of testing is we can measure blood levels of specific IgE um, to anything, and we can get a scale from zero to 100. The higher the number helps indicate the likelihood that allergy is present as well. And then the best test is something that at my institution, we did 600 of this year, oral food challenges. Mm -hmm. So when the history and or testing is indeterminate, or somebody with a known food allergy, we feel that they may be developing tolerance over time, which often happens with most food allergies, except for peanuts, tree nuts, and shellfish. Uh, we do food challenges. You come hang out in my office. We give you a very small amount to begin with. I'm there. You're there. Every 10 or 15 minutes, we give you a little bit more until you consume one or two servings. If no symptoms occur, the allergy is not present. And that's the best test. That's the gold standard. These are very safe to do and very empowering. Uh, even when symptoms do occur, people learn what a, le- what a reaction will look like. And they also learn that there's certain thresholds. There's a misconception that everybody with food allergy is going to die if they eat a trace amount. It doesn't work that way. Only 5% of the population with peanut allergy are exquisitely sensitive that they'd have any symptoms at all if they eat a trace amount or cross contact. For everybody else, you typically need to eat a certain amount for it to cause any symptoms at all. So it's an empowering experience. Now, awesome. uh, it, now there, there are some pitfalls with these tests. So Blood tests and skin tests are not screening tests at all. We can't just test just to see what we find because there are tons of false positive results, about 50% in fact. There are many reasons for false positives, especially in kids with eczema and other allergies. They're going to have just reactive skin, so you may see some false positive on, on skin testing. But what happens is these food allergens often look like other types of allergens, and the, a good example would be peanut protein. Somebody who has birch tree pollen allergy and they get itchy, watery eyes, sneezing, runny nose in the spring because birch tree pollen oftentimes will have an elevated peanut test as well because the Mm -hmm. peanut looks like the birch tree pollen. It doesn't mean they're allergic to peanut at all. It just means that you have a detectable IgE because they're really ramping up a lot of production against birch tree pollen. 
people who have shellfish allergy or people who have dust mite allergy and cockroach allergy can have false positives on shellfish testing. Mm. Uh, so there's a lot of these proteins that are highly conserved um, and that's what you're detecting on this. So just because you have an elevated result doesn't mean that you're allergic. Um, these tests are often interpreted as positive or negative, but they're not. These are not pregnancy tests. It's mm. not a black or white dichotomy. It only indicates the likelihood that you're allergic and lastly, the size of the test result to the blood test or skin test tells us nothing about how severe your allergy is. So anybody who's been told that this peanut test says that you're deathly allergic to peanut, that person simply has no idea how to interpret these tests. That's not what these show us. Uh, we don't have a great way of determining future risk of severe reaction other than in people who have already had a severe anaphylactic reaction. Wow, that's super helpful. I do get that a lot where families get frustrated because they feel like they should have been tested for more allergies because they're kind of looking for something. But I explain it the same way as you, that you, they were exposed to something, they had a reaction. It's better to specifically look for whatever was in that meal instead of just doing this blanket, huge number of tests uh, to try to dig for something that might exist there. Yeah, there are zero clinical indications to order or obtain a large panel of food allergy tests, none. Uh, there's a, a, a series called the Choosing Wisely series. It was started by the American Board of Internal Medicine. They partner with 60 different specialties. And the allergy side, there's 10 things that physicians and patients should avoid. Number one on the list, do not perform indiscriminate IgE testing unless the history is suggested for food allergy. And in the same paragraph, don't perform unvalidated tests for evaluation of food allergy, including IgG tests. That's number <laughs> one, number one on the list of things not to do. Yeah, and it's there because it, <laughs> is done often, right? You know, this is something that happens a lot. And there's, yeah. and you know, for good cause, because there are people that they're just frustrated and they have these weird symptoms. They want to know why, but that's why I'm glad I have you on here today is because you can kind of help clear up this confusion and help direct families towards things that are going to be more evidence-based and helpful for them. One thing that you said is that most people develop a tolerance for allergens, except for peanuts, tree nuts, and sh shellfish. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, the most common food allergen in, in infants and toddlers is actually milk followed by egg. Uh, then we see a rise in peanut allergy just because a lot of babies aren't typically eating peanut. Now, we expect the vast majority of, of children with milk and egg allergy to naturally develop tolerance as they get older. About 85% do it by school age. Um, so it's important that anybody who's diagnosed with food allergy early in life, they continue to follow the, the testing um, at least every year. Um, and that way you can help determine whether they may be able to, to eat it again. And that's mm -hmm. where the food challenges come into play. It breaks my heart when people are diagnosed when they're a year and they, I see them when they're 12 and they say, we were just told to avoid it. Like, oh my gosh, we should have repeated testing. And you, you know, they were probably tolerant years ago. Um, the same thing goes for other food allergens such as wheat and soy. Um, but, you know, for reasons we don't fully understand, uh, you know, people tend to hold on to peanut, tree nut, and shellfish allergies throughout life. Only about one in five will develop tolerance. And in addition, something we really don't understand Adults can develop new onset food allergy, legitimate IgE food allergy. They've been eating shrimp their whole life, and then all of a sudden they have hives or anaphylaxis when they eat seafood. Uh, we have no idea why that happens. Uh, it's a very rare phenomenon. Well, that was a question, so you already answered it. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot we don't know, and I'm not afraid to say it. <laughs> no, and it's true. There's a lot we don't know about a lot of things, so it's really important. Okay. Yeah. One thing that happens here where I live too, is we live in an agricultural area. So we are pretty much blasted with pollens, but mm -hmm. also with pesticides and things like that. In an area like this, so valleys or agricultural areas, are you going to see an even an 
increased amount, you said 30 to 40% of people are going to have environmental allergies. In an area like mine, will it be even higher or will being around these pollens induce more environmental allergies? Yeah. You, the short answer is yes, but we don't know why. Uh, again, there's the, there's the, the fun, I don't know answer. Um, we know every year the, Amer the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America provides their list of top allergy cities. Uh, I think 50 cities throughout the country. Uh, and there are just some hot spots where people have more allergies and or asthma. Uh, and a lot of it just has to do with the environment that we live in. Uh, it has to do with weather patterns and overall uh, airflow. If you live in a valley, things may settle and you just have higher exposure to things like small particulates and pollution, uh, maybe pesticides and the pollen and things like that. So there's a lot of factors that go into it. Um, but yes, and then, you know, also, if you live in a southern or warmer climate, you're going to be exposed to longer pollen seasons in general. Uh, as opposed to me here in central Ohio, where, you know, our grass pollen season is only, you know, two and a half months long. Mm -hmm. um, we do know there's excellent data that demonstrates with climate change that um, the pollen seasons are longer and longer. And we're seeing that correlates very strongly with an increase in severity of symptoms, as well as the prevalence of allergic rhinitis to these, to these pollens. Um, so yeah, weather seems to have a, a big, you know, play in it. But yeah, if you're in a farming community and you're, you know, there's high levels of these things um, that you're exposed to, then that can impact that. So besides moving, is there anything else that we can do to protect ourselves against it? Or is there any lifestyle measures that you ever talk to your patients about helping with allergies? Yeah, you can't even move because wherever you move to, you'll just develop new allergies in a couple of years. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I know. Um, so it all depends on what you're allergic to. But uh, once the, the switch gets flipped and somebody develops allergies and their immune system starts responding to things in the environment, there's not a whole lot we can do to turn off the switch. Um, but we have outstanding treatment measures, both medication avoidance strategies and then immunotherapy. Uh, when it comes to avoidance measures, if you're allergic to outdoor pollen, we recommend that you keep make the indoor um, environment a safe zone. So keep the windows completely closed 24 hours a day. Don't even crack them on nice days because you want to leave all the pollen outside. Change your clothes after being outside. Definitely take a bath or shower, wash your face and hair before going to bed every night. Um, a lot of the symptoms can be soothed with all natural remedies, such as drinking lots of water, exercising, which can impact your ability to tolerate the misery that you're having. Um, nasal saline spray or sinus washes are great at just flushing out the nasal mucosa, providing relief with because they can get really dry and irritated. Uh, medications, nasal steroid sprays work extremely well to treat all of the symptoms associated with uh, seasonal allergies or indoor allergies. Uh, oral antihistamines can treat the itching and sneezing, but they're not very good for stuffy noses, congestion, or post-nasal drip. Of course, if you have asthma, there's a whole variety of medications that we would use to try to control those symptoms as well. And then immunotherapy has been around for over 100 years. Uh, and this is a, a way of you know, desensitizing somebody where we take what you're allergic to, which you figure out by skin prick testing or you know, usually that preferred to blood testing, and we, we dilute it down uh, a thousand fold, and then we basically inject it back into the body. Um, it's kind of like a vaccine, but it's slightly different. And your body will become tolerant to it as you gradually increasing, increase the amount of antigen that you give and the concentration you give. It's not a quick fix. Symptoms don't improve for about six to 12 months after starting it. Um, there is safety concerns because if you take if somebody's severely allergic to grass, allergic enough to get immunotherapy, and you inject grass into their body, they could have a serious allergic reaction. So you have to sort of um, know how to prescribe it, administer it in a medical facility every time, whether it's a doctor's office or a hospital setting, be observed for about 30 minutes afterwards. Uh, and then you gradually increase to a maintenance dose. Uh, and then once you're on the maintenance dose, you can get injections about once a month. And we typically recommend treatment for three to five years to offer the most long-standing protection. And that's a way to potentially cure your allergies. 
along those lines, there's sublingual immunotherapy where people more so in Europe, but it's catching on more in the United States, they can put drops of the allergen under the tongue. And that's something that you can do at home. There are um, FDA approved products. These are tablets that dissolve under the tongue uh, for things such as ragweed, um, grass pollen as well, uh, you know, which you can take seasonally leading up to the season and during the season or year round. So we have a lot of options out there. And I would say to anybody listening, if you're suffering from environmental allergies, this is a, it's a real thing. This can absolutely impact your life. We know that it impacts sleep. You're not sleeping well for days to weeks at a time, which means your work performance is impaired, your school performance is impaired, kids can't learn, people aren't you know, staying awake at, at work. You're miserable, you feel awful. It's gonna curtail your outdoor activities. If you're suffering, you don't need to suffer. We have so many great individualized options available. See a board certified allergist in your area uh, and they can tailor your treatment according to your, you know, what you're looking for. That's great. So these are the so-called allergy shots that you're talking about, right? Yes, that's correct. And why don't more people do it? I just feel like, especially if, you know, I guess it takes a while and maybe is it costly? Why is it that more people don't do it? Or is there not as many people who are candidates for allergy shots? Yeah, you have to be a good candidate. So, you know, generally if, if uh, you know, you have some mild symptoms that are pretty well controlled when you take, you know, antihistamines every once in a while and that does the trick for you, then you, you're not a candidate for allergy shots. You know, why put you through it? It's a difficult schedule. Um, you have to go to the doctor's office once a week during the buildup period for six months. You're, you're working, there's activities, there may be limited office hours. There is the risk for localized and systemic allergic reactions. So it can be somewhat uncomfortable, but some people swear by them. They love them. And that's just a huge part of what they do. And uh, they believe in it and it works really well. Cool. That's great to have that option, especially for people who have moderate to severe environmental allergies. Yes. What about diet? And does diet make any difference when it comes to environmental allergies, such as eating a whole foods diet as opposed to a more processed diet? Has there been any research? Is there any evidence when it comes to just overall lifestyle habits? I know you talked about drinking water, exercise, those kinds of things, but what about our dietary choices? Yeah, you know, there's no great evidence surrounding that. Um, I can tell you that there's no evidence at all to support eating a specific food. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, eat, eat blueberries because they fight inflammation. Well, that's kind of a generic recommendation in these so-called superfoods and things like that. Uh, there's, you know, people say touting their honey. If you eat local honey, it can cure your allergies. Well, bees that, you know, they collect pollen from non-windborne plants like flowers, and those aren't the things that cause allergies in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you were to frankly eat, so there's not much pollen that causes allergy symptoms in honey, but even if there were and you were to eat the honey, uh, it wouldn't treat your symptoms, it would cause symptoms, and you would stop eating the honey pretty darn fast. <laughs> um, so that's just a huge misconception out there. <laughs> um, but, you know, to, to your initial question, um, no great evidence to show it, but common sense tells us, and we know this from you know, our immune system, that uh, eating a well-balanced variety of foods, we want nice, colorful plates, right? <laughs> Lots of fruits and vegetables, you know, whole foods and grains and things like that. That absolutely does support a, a well-balanced and, and normal-functioning immune system, whereas diets higher in processed foods, um, while it may not specifically worsen allergy symptoms, it's not going to make them better. But we, when we think about the whole person, if, if you're not exercising and not um, operating at higher capacity with a uh, level of energy and you're not sleeping well and you're eating uh, a diet that's causing you to put on some pounds and, and you're overweight, you're, you're not gonna, your symptoms are going to be worse. We know that. Uh, and plus, you're not going to deal as well with the symptoms that you're having. So there's a whole lot of reasons to eat a, a healthier diet. Um, but what I would say for your audience is I, I wouldn't fixate on one specific food causing or, or treating symptoms. Awesome. Thank you for that. 
essential oils. Any thoughts on those? Yeah, essential oils are, have no proven benefit in treating allergy symptoms. And in fact, they can make them a lot worse. Uh, so if your nasal mucosa is already irritated and dry and red and raw, and you um, either put drops of a, a fragranced oil or you diffuse it as an aerosol, that can act as an irritant for a whole lot of people. Uh, we want to be really careful for anybody who has asthma because these small chemicals are very good at getting in the lower airways and they can cause uh, bronchospasm, things like that. Uh, so not only is there no evidence to support using it, uh, there's a whole lot of reasons to avoid using them if you're already having these symptoms because they can make them worse in some people. Yeah, especially for people that are already kind of allergenic. I got scared because I read an article about how they're seeing more and more lavender allergies. And that's like my favorite. And I was applying it to my skin. You know, I was like, ah, lavender. So I stopped because the recommendation in the article was at least don't apply it topically as much as you can. It doesn't seem to cause me any nasal or anything when I diffuse it, but yeah. I definitely don't want to induce a. a, a lavender allergy because that's definitely my favorite so yeah you know the, the the route of exposure makes a huge difference uh especially if they're not diluted so highly concentrated essential oils put on the skin can irritate anybody especially anybody who already has sensitive skin or eczema or something like that mm -hmm. yeah i think it's an important thing to point out just because essential oils are so hot right now and everybody mm -hmm. thinks it's kind of like the cure-all for everything but they can cause harm and they can cause irritation so we do need to be careful and cautious about them Absolutely. All right. So I want to hit a little bit of a controversial topic here. But one of the things I've seen recently with those who may be wary of vaccines is the thought or the belief that vaccines may trigger allergies. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's not controversial at all. Um, they do not worsen. They don't cause allergies. Uh, they don't worsen allergies. Uh, they're not the reason why we're seeing a rise in food allergy. I've seen all the conspiracies, and that's what they are. They're conspiracy theories. You talk about the, the peanut oil and the vaccines, which never went to market in the first place from the 60s and, and aren't being used to this date. And even if peanut oil were in vaccines, uh, it wouldn't be causing people to have peanut allergy. It'd be causing people to have severe allergic reactions every time they received a vaccine that had that if they had a peanut allergy. So it just doesn't, it doesn't add up from an evidence standpoint or make any sense. Um, there's very limited studies. Um, well, one, there's no studies that show that you know, vaccines are causing an increase in allergies in, in any realm. Um, but we do have some limited studies showing that people actually who have their vaccines or normal recommended vaccine schedule are less likely to develop allergies. Uh, and of course, you're going to say, okay, well, smart guy, you just told me that the hygiene hypothesis says, um, you know, that, you know, if we're cleaner, and we're not getting sick all the time, that, you know, that's going to be associated with an increase in allergies. Well, this is our body's way of responding to these different antigens and building up the, our immunity without getting sick. And that's the point behind vaccines. They're, they're brilliant the way that they're designed. We can, you know, take a small piece of protein that looks like a bacteria or virus, insert it into the body so the immune system sees it. They learn from it, they adapt to it, therefore they don't actually get acutely ill from it. And then if they ever encounter it in real life, they can fight it off and prevent a severe illness from occurring. Um, so, you know, with all due respect, I would say it's not controversial at all. There's just really no reason to believe that, you know, that's a cause. And that's certainly not a reason to avoid vaccines in my opinion. Okay, great, thank you so much. I think we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to see if you wanted to take it a step further with the hygiene hypothesis and the gut microbiome, what do we know about the connection between the gut microbiome and allergies? Yeah, th this type of data is in its early, early infancy. Um, yeah, we, we know that people with allergies have a different microbiome. Um, 
what do we do with it or how does it differ or why does it differ or how can we change it? No idea yet. It's still way too early to even think about those stages. We are just now uh, getting to the stage where we can even measure this reliably. Uh, we're just now getting to the stage where we're associating it with various chronic conditions such as allergies, autoimmune conditions, things like that. Um, so th as this relationship uh, evolves, yes, I'm extremely excited to see where this takes us. Um, and, uh, but I don't think we're at the stage where anybody can say, oh, uh, your microbiome is altered because you have allergies, therefore take a probiotic and it'll fix it. We know mm -hmm. that that doesn't work. There's evidence that shows that doesn't work. Yeah. We're not at the stage yet, but isn't it fascinating that we've gone from like the beginnings of medicine where we didn't even know that bacteria existed in the first place to now we have to think about the bacteria that live inside of us and how that can affect so many different ways that our bodies work. Oh, it is so fascinating. I agree. I think it's really exciting. You know what really baffles my mind is you know, I've read some, some various uh, expert opinion on, well, perhaps the bacteria that live in us, like the trillions of bacteria, they dictate our lives, right? They could be responsible for why we have certain food cravings and why we have a diet that's certainly heavy in certain foods or things like that. That is just mind boggling, like these little tiny aliens that have taken over the spaceship and they're doing whatever they want with it. <laughs> yeah. And they can affect our mood and increase yes. risk of depression and anxiety and things like that. I mean, it's just, it's fascinating. Yes. All right. <laughs> Wonderful. My last question about allergies is pets. So I've, mm. I've seen both ways and I've seen difference in different kinds of pets. So what is our recommendation now when it comes to pets and preventing allergies specifically for infants and children? Yeah, the evidence is muddy. Um, it, it seems as though if an infant, a baby is born into a house in which a, a dog, especially, or a cat is already present, that they're less likely going to develop those pet allergies, not necessarily going to alter their risk for developing other allergies. Um, and we used to think it was because they were exposed to the dog dander or cat dander, but it's more likely the hygiene hypothesis again, because guess what that dog eats and puts his mouth on? Uh, so what's happening, and your audience may not want to listen, is uh, the dog eats their own poop, uh, and then they get <laughs> those endotoxins and bacteria, and then they lick the baby. <laughs> so it's probably along those lines. <laughs> so protective, it's possibly. I wouldn't tell families to get a dog to you know, prevent allergies from developing. Um, even in, in kids who develop cat and dog allergy, they're often sort of desensitized to their own pet. Um, because they just live in a house with it, they're exposed to it and don't have symptoms from it. And there's a fascinating phenomenon called the Thanksgiving effect. So kids live in a house for 18 years and they're fine with their dog. They go off to college for the first time. They come home over Thanksgiving and then they have terrible allergy symptoms because uh, they haven't seen their pet for four months. Oh, what a curse. That's so it sad. It's awful. <laughs> yeah. Um, but along these lines, uh, I want to be, uh, you know, another misconception I hear is, uh, and I'll clear it up, there is no such thing as a hypoallergenic pet. It doesn't exist. Uh, the dander that causes allergy symptoms comes from saliva, skin cells, and urine. Uh, all dogs and cats will release their dander into the air, which can cause allergy symptoms. Uh, with dog allergy, it's interesting because some people may only have symptoms around certain breeds as opposed to others. We see that all the time. We can't test for the different breeds necessarily. Um, whereas with cat allergy, most people are generally allergic to all cats. But it has nothing to do with shedding or hair length or anything like that. So, and if you're going to spend $20,000, because that's what they cost on a quote unquote, you know, genetically bred hypoallergenic animal, uh, it's marketing you're being lied to and save your money. Oh my gosh. I didn't even know that existed. That's There's so a funny. cat. I don't know if you remember the Austin Powers movies with Mr. Bigglesworth. Uh -huh. um, that's what the cat looks like. It's like hairless and... Um, it's yeah, not But very, I mean, they're supposed to be cuddly. <laughs> yeah, no. So, 
you know, chinchillas uh, allegedly um, have no allergic potential because they're, they're, they have so much density of hair per skin follicle, they can't release dander in the air. But it's my understanding that uh, despite being very cute and fluffy, that they hate being held, which would just Aww. be counterintuitive and stink. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. You know, yeah. I have heard of, because dogs can get tested for allergies too. And yes. I have heard of dogs being allergic to human dander. Wouldn't surprise me. That's, and that's so cool. Like, could you imagine yeah. like we're both allergic to each other, but you just love each other so much. And you know, it's like Romeo and Juliet, like being around each other is hard, but you want to be together anyway. Okay. So I went, <laughs> <laughs> I went way off on that one. Okay. That that's all super, super fascinating. So really what I'm taking away from this whole conversation is to decrease our risk. We need to be dirty, get sick, make sure that we're eating some foods early on, expose ourselves to those foods and drink lots of water, exercise, mm -hmm. and eat healthy. I'm just adding those parts for emphasis because that's what yeah. I like to say. So <laughs> great. So as we finish up, I would like to know, what do you wish more parents knew? And this could be about anything. It doesn't have to specifically be about allergies, but what do you wish more parents knew? Uh, I wish that as a, as a whole, um, we all had a better understanding of science literacy uh, and health literacy and how to understand how to take the millions of terabytes of information that we're bombarded with every day on Instagram, Twitter, social media, the internet, and how to weed out, um, you know, the reliable stuff from the misinformation that's out there. Uh, that's a large part of what I do in, in, in my, my gig here on social media is uh, there's so much misinformation out there. A lot of it sounds good. As a general rule, if it sounds too good to be true, it likely is. As a physician, I promise you, I am not withholding any miracle cures. Um, I'm not trying to propagate illness to make money off of it or anything like that. It just doesn't work that way. We're, we're good people. You know, we're here to help people and we've devoted our lives to, to that. Um, so if, if there's a lot of marketing and pseudoscience and shenanigans going on online, and I wish that parents, um, I, I hope everybody understands that that's occurring. Uh, and I hope that they take an active investment in learning how to um, identify that and combat it. And as always, hopefully you find a physician that you trust with you or your child's health and that you can turn to. I had an interaction yesterday. I won't keep you much longer. It was the perfect scenario. I was so excited. I actually jumped out of my chair. And it was a parent who came with a list of questions on her phone, which I love because office visits are chaotic. You're going to forget things. She was going through the list and she said, you're going to get mad at me, but I want to ask you, uh, what's your take on this causing allergy? And I said, oh, that's really interesting. I've never heard of that before. I was like, what's the source? She's like, I said, was it a research paper? And she said, well, no, it wasn't a research paper. It was actually another mother in an online support group sent it to me. And it turned out just to be a quote from one individual in an article. That was it. There's no, it was a theory, nothing to back it at all. She's like, you're going to hate me. I was like, I don't hate you at all. I'm really glad that you took this information and you brought it up here. I can tell you, I'm going to look into it myself. If I find anything, I'll let you know. Certainly if you encounter anything, I want to be a trusted source for you. To me, that was the perfect example of they're online living their lives, hearing this information, trying to do what's best for their child, and then coming to me to see if any of the information is valid. Um, that's the perfect relationship between finding information online and knowing what to do with it to make medical decisions. Mm, that is such a great message. Thank you for sharing that. And what personal habit are you most proud of? How did you develop it and how do you maintain it? Uh, two years ago, I, I don't make resolutions anymore, but two years ago, I made a New Year's resolution to read 50 books uh, in 2018 because I'm a slow reader. My wife reads you know, a book a week and I, I just never devoted it. So I actually took my, my background and, and expertise in quality improvement and I applied it to my own life. Uh, and I developed a, a systematic way 
to adopt small changes to create long-lasting improvement. And uh, in 2018, I read 64 books. Uh, and then in 2019, I sustained it and I read 68 books. Um, and uh, it's fantastic. It's opened my entire world. Uh, it's books on productivity. It's fiction, nonfiction, uh, personal improvement, um, you know, allergy-related stuff. But it's mostly for leisure, and I love it. So that's the, the newest thing. That's great. What a great story, too, going from like, uh, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I want to do this. It's going to be so laborious. You exceeded your goal and then continue to exceed your goal. Yeah, and I love it now. It's exciting. That's so cool. Well, Dr. Dave, this has been so, so amazing. You are super helpful. What a great expert to have on the show. How can listeners connect with you? I, the easiest way, find me on Twitter or Instagram. My handle is at AllergyKidsDoc. Um, and you'll see I, I engage a lot with the public. I can never provide individual medical advice. And I don't recommend that anybody do that, especially non-qualified uh, people out there. But I just can't do it. You're not my patient. Even if you are my patient, don't ask me questions on Twitter. Give me a call. <laughs> I'll call you back. But I can provide general information. I can give you vetted resources and, uh, you know, and, and talk a lot of, uh, about these misconceptions. And tell me again, which is the podcast that you say that you're on a lot or that you're yeah, part of? So through the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, I'm the producer and host of the podcast. It's called Conversations from the World of Allergy. Uh, it's great. We have CME episodes for any physicians who are listening. Uh, and then, but it's great for the general public as well. And I, inter I get to interview some of the top experts in allergy about uh, a lot of the things we talked about today. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm excited to continue to connect with you online. And I am just so grateful for your expertise today. And I hope that you have a plantastic day. Thank you so much. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for tuning in and I look forward to having you back again next week. A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons for permission to use the broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at Rocket Surgeons Music. Please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, all of my social media links can be found in the podcast description. Send me a message and let me know what you think of today's podcast. Sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast and drop me a line if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again and have a plantastic day. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.